This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. India is beginning to develop in a very plural media environment where people have really high aspirations and the capacity of the Indian economy to give them the kind of jobs and opportunities that they want. That is another problem and Modi has not really been able to crack that yearning for opportunity within India. And now The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can be to authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. There's been a tremendous amount of appetite in the media to depict a civil war within the Democratic Party between the far left and the moderates. I'm a little skeptical of this narrative. For one, as you will have seen in my conversation with Jake Sullivan a few episodes ago, one of the supposed moderates, people like him actually have some very far-reaching, enterprising ideas about economic policy that don't easily fit into this schema at all. For another, there's been this narrative that progressives are taking over the party. There's a few examples of that. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the most famous one who won a district in the Bronx for primaries on relatively low turnout. But when you look at what has happened over the last two years on the whole in democratic primaries, it is actually people who are firmly on the center-left, neither extreme moderates nor people on the far left who have won again and again. This pretty vibrant center-left spans from Gretchen Whitmer, who just won a primary in Michigan last week to be the nominee for governor there, to people like Stacey Abrams in Georgia. It is crucial that we don't talk about a civil war when there isn't even one. It will harm Democrats' electoral prospects if moderates decide, if swing voters decide, that the Democrats are veering off far to the left. And more importantly, it will alienate people who don't get their favorite candidate elected in the primaries and who will say, you know what, there's such a civil war going on in the Democratic Party, if my candidate doesn't win, it's not worth turning out to vote for the other one. Keep your eye on the prize. The prize in 2018 is control of the House of Representatives and perhaps even the Senate, which people who care about the fate of liberal democracy need in order to ensure that there are some real checks and balances. And the big prize in 2020 is to defeat a president who is dangerous to our democratic institutions. For both purposes, as countless examples from Hungary to Turkey to Russia to Venezuela show, the unity of the opposition is absolutely crucial. 
So the next time somebody talks up with glee, the civil war in the Democratic Party, slap them down, tell them that this is counterproductive and untrue. But now it's a real pleasure to introduce James Crabtree. James, uh, for a long time, was the uh, Mumbai correspondent for the Financial Times. He has just written a great book called The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. Uh, he's also an associate professor in practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School in Singapore. It was a wide-ranging conversation, as always. We talked about James's new book and the new kind of plutocratic class that is rising in India. But more broadly, we try to make sense of the way in which Narendra Modi and the BJP, who are now dominant in India, do or don't fit into the pattern of populism about which we've talked so much about on this podcast with regard to North America and Western Europe. If you know India well, I hope you'll still learn something. And if you don't know India well, I can promise you that there is a lot of really interesting stuff in this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hi, thank you for being here. So listen, you've spent a lot of time writing about and reporting in India. And one of the things that I always try to make sense of, but, but sometimes struggle to make sense of, is how similar or different developments in different parts of the world are. So, you know, on one level, you look at somebody like Narendra Modi and you see a ton of similarities to people like Reza Erdogan in Turkey or even in certain ways to somebody like Donald Trump in the United States. On the other hand, you look at the United States and you look at India and there are such vastly different countries across a whole set of dimensions. Obviously, how poor or wealthy they are, how long they've been a democracy, what kind of political institutions they have, what their dominant religion is, what the political system is polarized around and so on and so forth, that it seems sort of strange to overplay the, the similarities and the parallels. So if you had never heard of India and you read a bunch of things about the rise of authoritarian populism and the kind of challenge that it poses to a political system, how much do you think that would actually explain about India and how much would it leave out or get wrong? That's a great question. There's always differences within institutional setups. The, the, the global democratic malaise narrative that a lot of people have been talking about at the moment talks about a bunch of quite different systems. I would take a step back from that and say, think about what India is. 1.3 billion people living in a democracy in Asia. It is a radical democracy in the sense that the academic evidence tells us generally that poorer countries tend not to be democracies, or at least they're very unstable. There's this magic figure from the economic research of roughly $6,000, after which you're much more likely to become a democracy, and then you don't tend to go back. India is still way below that. So although it's been a democracy since 1947, it's very unusual, but it seems to work. It has a and by the way, just, just for context for listeners, because I sometimes, I, I think, refer to the same research, but I use updated numbers. So it's at about fourteen dollars or $15,000 GDP per capita in today's terms, if we're talking about the same study, which, which I believe we are. That's right. So this is Adam Prozorsky's study. But the point is, that generally speaking, poorer countries find it more difficult to become democracies and then more difficult to sustain democracies. India is a big outlier. 
But at a very basic level, it's a huge country. It is a democracy. And therefore, those of us who care about the future of democracy should be interested in it. And the reason why I think it's an interesting opportunity is it opens up a new front in the discussion that is happening all around the world about the health of democracy. We spend a lot of time thinking about Hungary, for instance, which is a very important example. Nonetheless, it's quite a small country. It doesn't have 1.3 billion people in it. And at a time in which the democratic direction of many countries is heading um, in the way that perhaps we wouldn't like. You look at China, it's sliding back into becoming some form of Leninist autocracy. Then the fate of India and whether or not it can continue to be a parliamentary democracy with a broadly market-led economy or whether some of the trends that you see elsewhere in the world are also true in India is something that should be of huge concern to anyone who um, is interested in the future of democracy. Now, of course, you're right. The democratic system, the heritage of the country is a post-colonial power, all sorts of things, the caste system, the way religion works are all different in India. Nonetheless, I think there are some worrying commonalities, the influence of money in politics, the corrosive impact of social media on politics, the rise of a certain kind of populism and nationalism you mentioned um, embodied in Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who may be not quite as extreme as some of the others you deal with on this podcast, but nonetheless is taking India fairly squarely away from its more secular heritage. And I think there are things to be worried about in India's democratic firmament, which are worth thinking about as you think about this debate more broadly globally. So what is the actual case for listeners who don't know that much about India? What is the case for the similarities? And how worried does that make you about the persistence of the democratic system in India? So India has been a democracy since 1947, which is when it won its independence from uh, my people, the United Kingdom, uh, after a couple of hundred years worth of colonialism. And, and so since then, with one brief exception, there was a period of rule by decree in the middle of the 1970s, which is known as the emergency under one prime minister. But since then, it's been broadly democratic. It's democratic in the sense that it has elections. The elections are broadly free and fair. They are great festivals of democracy that involve hundreds of millions of people. The weakness of India's democracy, there's a historian by the name of Ramachandra Guha who makes this point that uh, India is very democratic at election time. The problem comes in between where, although it is formally democratic, the liberal element of a liberal democracy is often weaker. So the institutions that are required, the court system, the institutions to support equality between different religions, for instance, particularly for the very poor, have been more problematic. Um, nonetheless, compared to a country like Pakistan, uh, India's neighbor next door, which has sort of flipped incoherently between a certain form of constitutional democracy and military rule, India's record is quite impressive. The reasons to worry are a numberfold. A lot of people who are liberal worry about Narendra Modi himself because he does appear to have characteristics that are similar to the other populist uh, nationalist leaders. Uh, Narendra Modi is the BJP is the center-right party. He's a Hindu nationalist. And so India, from its foundation, in addition to having elections, was also a secular country. So they inherited that to a degree from the British. And one of the big worries is that India's secular heritage is now being overcome by a form of populist Hindu nationalism. And that's the worry with Modi. There are many other worries, but that's one of the principal well, What are some of the other worries? And describe Narendra Modi a little bit to us. Who is he? Where does he come from? What kind of figure is he? So Narendra Modi is a poor son of a tea seller, is the famous foundation myth. He grew a 
Waller. Shia Waller, correct. He grew up in the state of Gujarat in a village. I went to visit the village where he delivered tea to the people who passed on the one train line that goes through that village. He was born into a lower caste. Typically, India's prime ministers are from the upper caste, so he's very unusual. And his form of social advancement was he fell in with an institution that was a right-wing religious institution, and he rose within that. And the BJP is the political wing of that institution. And so he, in a sense, has two claims to great popularity, one of which is as a religious nationalist. And so he has great support amongst Hindus who think that India should be not a secular country, but a Hindu country. So India has Hindus, it has Muslims, it has Sikhs, it has Jains and Christians, but the Hindus are the majority, about 80% of the population. And so the Hindu nationalists think that, in a sense, India has been colonized by foreigners, first Muslims, then Brits, then socialists, after 1947, three forms of foreign ideas, and they want to reassert a muscular form of Hindu identity. And there is a sort of strange parallel there, at least, to the United States. I mean, the big debate about whether the United States is a republic that is built on principles which are respective of religion or whether it is a Christian republic. So in an odd way, this makes me think that perhaps the way to understand Narendra Modi for an American audience is that he has some of the political rhetoric around exclusion and the claim that he alone really stands for people and so on that you would see in a populist like Viktor Orban Hungary or like Donald Trump in the United States. But he also comes from a cohesive movement with a strong, long-standing support base, which is perhaps more similar to somebody like the vice president, Mike Pence, and the kind of roots he has in the evangelical political movement in the United States. Again, with appropriate caveats that these systems are very different. I think that's a very good way of looking at it. So Modi, his situation is quite like a traditional Republican president, not so much like Donald Trump, although he does talk about India first in the way that Trump talks about America first. But Trump has this religious nationalist heritage, which is a little bit similar to the Christian coalition and the old Christian right. But he is also an economic technocrat. And so he's a believer in economic development in sort of Chinese-style grand infrastructure projects. He was an anti-corruption candidate in a period when India had gone through a spate of corruption um, scandals. And so the reason why he was so successful in 2014 was he was able to do something that no Hindu nationalist had done before, which was he was also able to bring with it a message of economic competence about job creation, mm -hmm. about infrastructure development, about the things that India as a poor country really needed. And these two things made him very popular. I mean, he won an overwhelming victory in 2014, and he's still incredibly popular. The latest Pew data says that his approval rating is 80%, which would be stunning or unheard of within an American context. And so he brings this unusual sort of two forces to bear. People don't tend to be that worried about his the economic technocrat side. The worry is on the other side, as in, is he really moving India towards a much more post-secular religious nationalist society. And so, because I think now we've jumped a little bit ahead, I mean, what does his political appeal and his political rhetoric look like? If you went to one of his rallies, if you looked at some of his campaign literature, how is it that he mobilized this incredible popularity? Why would we have to be worried about it? What are some of the ways in which he seems to flout liberal democratic norms and institutions? 
Well, so he is a mesmerizing public speaker. There's nothing really like going to an Indian public rally where you can have tens, um, occasionally hundreds of thousands of people gathered in rural areas, and the politician will be flown in by helicopter, land in the middle of a field, and proceed to give often a barnstorming rally. And, and Modi is a, an extraordinary orator, funny persuasive, angry, emotional. He knows how to work a crowd like almost no one I've ever heard. And my Hindi is not very good, so I can't always understand exactly what he's talking about, but I can see the effect that it's having on the crowd when you're standing there. People worry about him because there is a radical stream of India's Hindu right, which wants to rewrite the school textbooks to get rid of a secular heritage, which wants to assert a chauvinistic vision of Hinduism, particularly with respect to Muslims. The poorer Muslim minority are victimized often. There have been an array of rather ghastly crimes against Muslims, lynchings, all manner of rather horrendous things that have been perpetrated by gangs of Hindu hoodlums. Now, Modi doesn't organize this or necessarily promote it, but what tends to happen is these things happen by people who have been emboldened by his presence, who are supporters of his, extremists, people who want him to go further, and he doesn't tend to do very much about it. There is this India is a big, complicated place, but other groups who are more extreme than he is are pushing the boundaries, trying to deconstruct the old secular edifice of India in which people like Mahatma Gandhi created an image of India in which Muslims and Hindus and Jains and Christians would live together in a broadly constitutional order with secular rights. And Modi's supporters, many of them don't like that idea at all. And so there's this creeping sense that the old idea of India is being dismantled under Modi's rule. And the best that can be said about him is he's not doing very much to stop it. Yeah, and it seems like there are real similarities there to politicians like Donald Trump, for example, when he was asked in the general campaign in 2016 that he had been endorsed by Duke, the head of KKK, and he didn't in any way say, well, I don't want his support. And then ultimately, he later claimed that he hadn't heard the question, but that seemed quite unconvincing. There's a similar phenomenon happening in Italy where former political candidate, actually, for the Northern League, went on a shooting spree in the southern Italian city of Macerata, shooting about seven African migrants. And uh, Matteo Salvini, the, the leader of the party and now the interior minister, has never condemned that. So it's not like they go out of a way to support it. It's not like they say, of course, these are my people working on my behalf. But they also recognize that they are aligned enough of some of those ideas that they don't want to actually distance themselves in any kind of active way. Would you say that that's sort of roughly... I think that's very similar. I mean, in India... This analogy with America, so let's say you're an American Republican president, you have your Christian coalition forces that you want to keep sweet, but you also want Wall Street, the traditional Rockefeller Republicans. There's something a little similar in India where the BJP, which is Mr. Modi's party, the Hindu nationalist, but also slightly more center-right party, has tended to be pro-business, the party of the shopkeeper, to some degree the party of the stock market, but it's also the party of the institution is known as the RSS, which is the Hindu nationalist, big, almost paramilitary organization. And so Modi needs that organization to win elections. They are his foot soldiers in electoral politics. They're the people who, in American parlance, they go out and knock on doors. And so he can't alienate himself from them, added to which he was drawn from that tradition. That's where he came from. He was what is called a pracharak in his younger days, which is a, basically a traveling preacher who walked or took a scooter from town to town, spreading news of Hindu nationalism, trying to kind of preach to people and convert them to the cause. 
And so he was a religious extremist in his youth, and then he moderated somewhat as he grew older, particularly after there was a, a series of communal riots in 2002 when he was a chief minister, which blackened his name because on his watch, many Muslims were killed in a series of communal riots that he was seen at the very least to have condoned and not done enough to stop. After that time, he went on a little journey of his own where he became more interested in economic development and to some degree distanced himself from his heritage as a religious extremist. But this is why he's so suspected by liberals and secularists in India, because they think underneath he's still this red-in-tooth-and-claw religious figure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So, you know, I often talk about illiberal democracy as one form that this populism takes and often a transitional stage to straightforward dictatorship or some dictatorships with a sort of electoral pretense, as we're seeing in countries like Hungary and Turkey. You know, I've increasingly come to think that there's actually sort of two different elements of illiberal democracy. And depending on which of those are present and how strong each of them are, you get quite different outcomes. So one of them is simply a lack of respect for individual and minority rights. So you can have an illiberal democracy in which a populist takes extreme measures against migrants, discriminates against indigenous minorities. And then the second element of it is really an attack on political institutions, an attack on the independence of the Supreme Court, an attack on the fair administration of elections, an attack on the free press, and so on. Now, what you've said so far convinces me that there are some real risks from Narendra Modi on the first kind of forms of illiberal democracy, that clearly for the rights and the lives of Muslims in India, he's rather dangerous. But we haven't said much about the second half of that. And I wonder whether that's because not so much of that is happening or whether we just haven't gotten around to it in the conversation yet. So how concerned should we be that, like Orban in Hungary, like Erdogan in Turkey, he might actually start to concentrate more and more power in his own hands in a way which makes it increasingly difficult for the opposition to actually be able to displace him in free and fair elections. So the first thing to say about Modi is he is a Democrat. I mean, he, he's not an autocrat in the limited sense that he likes winning elections. He's very good at it. Um, so this formal process of democracy, he's never actually lost an election that he has contested. He's an extremely adept electoral politician. But this issue of institutions is one that is also rather worrying in India. So the normal way that we think about India's institutional setup is that it has a very weak state. It's very disorganized. There's lots of corruption at its lower levels. One of the famous descriptions is it's not a failing state, it's a flailing state. Lant Pritchard, the Harvard, uh, maybe your Harvard colleague or former Harvard colleague, um, came up with that formulation, which is that at its head, in the very center, it's quite intelligent. But as you get down to the lower extremities, it behaves in all sorts of very peculiar ways and doesn't tend to have very much state capacity. What's happened of late is that there has been growing concern that even the high-quality bits of the Indian state are beginning to degrade, partially because of uh, things that are happening under Modi. So these would be the upper reaches of the judicial system, particularly the Supreme Court, uh, which over the last year has had a, a sort of series of minor scandals 
uh, which are quite complicated to go into. But anyway, traditionally, the Indian Supreme Court has been a rather admired institution, and that has become slightly tainted. The Electoral Commission, also typically Indian elections are very well run. They're free and fair. It's an extraordinary thing that although India often can't appear to organize its way out of a paper bag at the local level, they organize these massive elections very well. But there have been some questions about the Electoral Commission and the central civil service itself, which although not a formally democratic institution, but a sort of bureaucratic institution, is also in a sort of slightly shabby state. And so there is a worry about the state of some of these institutions. And particularly in the case of the Supreme Court, people are very worried that there's a form of creeping political independence that is linked to Modi and some of his henchmen. And there are two different kinds of threats to some of these freedoms, right? I mean, both the freedom to protest and the freedom of speech can either be a threat from a state with very high capacity that is incredibly adept at finding if you said something they dislike and throwing you in prison as a result in the sort of way we think about totalitarian countries or the way we know from George Orwell's 1984. But of course, it can also be at threat from lacking state capacity, especially when coupled with a lack of political will to punish certain kinds of perpetrators. So as I understand developments in India, there isn't a life threat so far, certainly, of people being locked up because of what they say, uh, even though there's been certain attempts at censorship, I understand, especially when religious feelings of Hindus have been affected by books, for example. But there is rather a life worry, I understand, about basically groups of thugs going around and intimidating people who either strongly oppose the, the BJP and the RSS or say things that are considered to, again, hurt the feelings of religious Hindus and so on. And because the state doesn't have a capacity to protect these people and because perhaps the central government and some of the chief ministers in the United States don't have much of an interest in protecting them, you wind up effectively at risk if you make certain kinds of political utterances. Is that something that you've seen turn and change over the last years and that you're concerned about, or do you not really think that this is one of the things to have serious worries about? I think the distinction you draw is the right one, which is that distinction between the capacity of the state and the will of the state. So traditionally, the problem in India was the capacity of the state. You had a secular state with a constitution, which if you read it, looks close to the ideal of what you'd want, which is that you know a lot of good liberal rights, protections for minorities, a lot of principles of equality. But the state was simply not able to deliver that. And so people's rights were unactualized. The suspicion now is that in large parts of India, the state is not interested in delivering that, that actually it has a rather different vision, particularly in areas where the BJP is dominant. And as you say, there's been a trickle of examples that people are alarmed by, lynchings, ritualized violence against women, some rather kind of peculiar things that there's an attempt to remarry Hindu women who marry Muslim men. There was a big scandal around this, that this was seen to be Muslim stealing Hindu women. And I believe the slogan around this, which is a perfect little piece of populism, is uh, love jihad. That's right. So the love the jihad. The idea that somehow Muslim men in the country are trying to reconvert India to Islam or convert India to Islam by going off and marrying our Hindu women. That's right. I mean, it's quite similar to the process of not so much violent Islam in an institutional sense, but Islamism, that this is wound up, I think, in a reaction to a period of globalization. So the, the period that India has been through over the last 20 years, extraordinary political change, huge increase in wealth, a reintegration with the global economy after 40 years of being effectively closed off. And that has 
turned much of society upside down. And so people seek solace in traditional identities, and that means Hindu identity. And so even though the Hindus are a majority, the 80% of the country is Hindu, the rulers tend to be Hindu, the Hindus have a whip hand everywhere, there is a real feeling that somehow they are being put upon. And, and so Love Jihad is an example that, that people really did believe that somehow crafty Muslims were going around attempting to systematically steal Hindu women and convert them to Islam. There's absolutely no evidence for this, but that was something that would get gangs of people out in the street and then the police wouldn't interfere, the chief ministers would be fearful of prosecuting people. The combination of the weakness of the Indian state and in some circumstances, the political leanings of those in power meant that there was very little hope of justice for people from minorities. And that's an example of the, the sort of creeping illiberality that people in India worry about. That's interesting to me because something that's always puzzling in different countries is the feeling of groups which on one count seem to be utterly dominant. Right, I mean, Hindus in India are numerically dominant, they're more economically affluent, they hold for political power, and yet they have this strong feeling, or parts of the population have a strong feeling that somehow their power is being taken away, that they are losing the country they once had. Actually, the best encapsulation of this, I think, comes from a German book by Tilo Sarazin, who says, Deutschland schafft sich ab, Germany is abolishing itself for all kinds of spurious reasons. So why is that? Why is it that globalization and these developments make a group that actually is very powerful, very influential, feel like they're really not? I think you have to see it in the long sweep of history that India remains a poor country that has been the plaything of colonial and other powers for quite a long time. And so if you're a Hindu, you may be a majority in your own country, but you look around you and you think, well, why are my circumstances so much more limited than those of the other countries, including the ones who used to come in here and be our colonial masters. And so while you're a majority at home, you feel as if somehow it can't be your own fault, not that it necessarily was, that you're in these circumstances. So shadowy forces outside in some way have come and done you down. And that's why the narrative of Hindu nationalism, which is that Narendra Modi sometimes uses these phrases in speeches that for a thousand years or 1200 years, we were slaves. Ever since the first Mughal invasion, nearly a millennia ago, India was downtrodden and the honest Hindu was at the mercy of foreign forces. And so this narrative of victimization, it explains the limited circumstances in which you find yourself, but it's also very powerful for political leaders. It's very motivational. Hinduism in general is a very syncretic, diverse, decentralized religion. But what the Hindu nationalists have done, very much like the Islamists, is they've created almost a much more Abrahamic version of it, which is much simpler, that has simple tenets, that has a, a meta-narrative, which has a large component of victimhood within it. And when you roll that out into villages in which you know there is really no rule of law, in which your politicians are effectively criminals, you know this can have quite grim consequences. So you mentioned globalization. Are you thinking of globalization in this context as primarily a cultural or an economic force? I understand that your new book, which is very worth reading, The Billionaire Raj, is subtitled A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age, which emphasizes 
an economic aspect in a certain kind of way that we haven't really talked about so far in this conversation? I tend to think it's a little bit of both. So um, predominantly my interest, so I was a foreign correspondent. I lived in Mumbai, the financial capital, not Delhi. And so the, the work that I did was reporting on capital. So I got to know the banks and the tycoons, the heads of the big conglomerates. And, and so the money that has come into India and the extraordinary effect that that has had on its economy, including the rise of a new billionaire class at the top, is something that I became quite fascinated by. And there's a big economic component to this underlying force for Hindu nationalism that India's changed economy has shaken up a lot of old certainties. You know, women traditionally in a very patriarchal society have begun to enter the workforce. People who previously didn't have money now do have money. People who used to have all the money don't have as much anymore. There's a lot of things that have been shaken up over the last 20 years. But there is also... Now, my favorite expression of this when I was traveling in Delhi not so long ago was the idea of Delhi boys, who, uh, as I understand it, sort of the conception of an old uh, genteel upper class, nearly a kind of local aristocracy, or in some ways actually a local aristocracy, about the often peasants who happen to have land holdings around Delhi, mm. which with a real estate boom and so on, has become incredibly valuable. And so they rock up in central Delhi at you know whichever restaurants and clubs and have much more money and throw it around. But the old class looks at them with a certain amount of disdain. I know I'm now flogging this comparison to death, but you can actually think of Donald Trump as a kind of deli boy, I think. <laughs> it is true that the change that has come over India in the last 20 or 30 years, which has been one of the most dramatic of any uh, major emerging market, I mean, it's happened as quickly as China, or a little bit later than China, but it, it, the change is as profound, has shaken up the old commercial elite establishment. The old elite establishment used to be English-speaking, it was rather modest and genteel. Now the barbarians have come in from the gates and they tend to be from, you know, drawn from different classes. They're, they don't go to English public schools. They come from a different area, but they are also now very rich. And so the shakeup that has followed India's reintegration with globalization is part of the reason why I think people feel threatened and uncertain and they seek traditional forms of identity. But there is also, as you would perhaps expect, a cultural overlay to this in which the sort of homogenization that you hear about in globalization, people don't like that very much. And so there is an attempt to create a Hindu narrative about the importance and centrality of the Hindu state. Sometimes this is rather ridiculous that some of the kind of quasi-theologians who are on the periphery of Modi's party come up with all sorts of preposterous ideas about, you know, how it was the Hindus invented flight a thousand years ago. I'm making that up, but that's the sort of thing that pops I, know, I, I thought it was an actual thing. I've heard this. Yeah, well, I'm, no, I don't think so, but uh, No, I'm, I'm pretty sure when I was at the literary festival in Jaipur, there was in fact somebody who claimed that when you look through the old old Hindu tales, you see stories of light. Right. And this well, is well, so maybe maybe that actually is a real example, but there are all sorts of comparable examples of medical advances or space travel, all sorts of things which Hindus are meant to have done first. And so there's a Hindu chauvinism in addition to having a component that is disrespectful of other kinds of minorities is also attempting to try and create a narrative about itself. And that to some degree has to be a reaction against the onslaught of global culture. However, in some ways, India is quite resilient to that, as opposed to China, for instance, which consumes Hollywood movies with great abandon, even though they limit them to 10 a year. India has been very resilient against um, American imported pop and TV culture, Bollywood. The film culture there remains a sort of strongly dominant. And so India has 
has this indigenous culture, which it's quite proud of and, you know, which is to some degree resistant to outsiders. So I think it's a little bit of both. So let's understand the economic aspect of this, right? I mean, you know, when I try to understand the rise of populism in, in established democracies in the West, I find that the stagnation of living standards from one generation to the next seems to me a very plausible part of the explanation. Well, certainly in India or in countries like Turkey and to some degree Poland and Hungary, that's not the case. You have seen tremendous economic growth over the last 25 or 30 years, much to the chagrin of many Indians, not quite as fast as China, so that uh, while the countries were once at a comparable level of poverty, China is now well over twice as wealthy per capita as India is, I think actually three times as much. But obviously, the story of the last 25, 30 years cannot be that everything was sort of fine politically. But then, you know, while you had rapid growth and money had stagnation and lo and behold, you get this sort of anger in your politics. You've had rapid economic development the last mm. 25, 30 years. Well, you have a conundrum with the way Indians view democracy. If you look at surveys of democratic satisfaction, as in what proportion of the population are satisfied with their democracy, India comes out top. I think the latest figure was uh, 79% of Indians in surveys, and the the Spectator does a a survey of this sort, are satisfied with the workings of democracy. And that, I think, is because, in material terms, almost everybody in India, their lot has improved visibly over a generation. This is a country where you really have to be very unlucky at the moment in order for you to do worse than your parents did. The rising tide is lifting all boats. But you have another thing going on at the same time, which is the rising tide is lifting the top far more rapidly. I mean, India has always been a very unequal society. We know about the caste system, but there are inequalities of religion, of language, of region. And because we have this image in our head that India is a very stratified, hierarchical, unequal society, we almost haven't noticed how much more unequal it has become over the last 20 years, which is staggering. India is now, if not the most unequal major country in the world, then it's right up there with Brazil and South Africa. And the problem that India faces is that it's at a much earlier stage of development than any of those other countries. And so if it continues on this path, it's going to become inegalitarian in a quite radical and almost unprecedented way. So you have that. You then have corruption. You mentioned earlier the experiment in demonetization, which was Narendra Modi's moment of madness, in which he decided to scrap almost all of India's banknotes in an attempt, he claimed, to wipe out corruption. The idea being that lots of people in India had corruptly acquired basically bags of money that they'd got through bribery. They were hiding them under the bed. This was the sort of the image. And that if you got rid of all the banknotes and replaced them overnight, then all of that money would be worthless, or they'd have to bring it into the bank and get it replaced, and then they'd have to explain where it came from. And for all sorts of reasons, this was a completely ridiculous thing to do. It was very disruptive. The whole country was turned upside down for a few months. It didn't do very much to corruption because people found ways around it. But it was quite popular. It was a remarkable moment in Indian public life because even though it was incredibly inconvenient and for weeks afterwards you had to queue up to get money out of a cash machine or you literally didn't have any money because they got rid of it all and they hadn't worked out how to replace it, the common man basically supported what Modi was doing because it was a classic populist gambit. It was the mass against the elite. He framed it as there are these people up there, they have their ill-gotten gains, and I am going to do something very dramatic against this elite that is corrupt. And people supported that because there is, if you're talking about the, the root of a rise of a certain kind of populism, then anger 
at corruption in addition to um, inequality, the sense that the bribe-taking policeman, the corrupt bureaucrat, the crony capitalist tycoon are all in cahoots with one another and you yourself, the, the common man, is not actually doing that well, you don't have a, a job. That's a second source of disgruntlement. And then the third, which I mentioned briefly, is employment. The way China became rich was, you know, you left your farm, you got a basic job in a factory, you learned a few things in the factory, and on you went upwards to eventually, maybe not you, but your children having a, a kind of proper white-collar job. Almost nobody in India has a white-collar job of the sort that you or I would recognize, but they have the aspiration for one. Mm. Even if you're relatively fortunate, you go to your schooling and then you go to a kind of Indian university of sorts, unless you're in the real elite, you come out of that and you're not really going to get a good non-manual, you probably can't even get a factory job. But unlike in China, when China began its economic development path in the early 1980s, people didn't have smartphones. You know, they had much more limited information. India is beginning to develop in a very plural media environment where people have really high aspirations and the capacity of the Indian economy to give them the kind of jobs and opportunities that they want, that they know to have what a good life looks like, a kind of Indian middle-class life where you're not doing back-breaking menial labor, you have some sort of material comforts. That is another problem, and Modi has not really been able to crack that the sort of yearning for opportunity within India and the gap between that and where the country really is. And so across those three different areas, um, inequality, corruption, and sort of jobs and opportunity, you have the embers where populism can take light. I have a couple of words here. I mean, one is that there's a very famous argument by Samuel Huntington that you get political change and political instability at the point at which there is a big gap between opportunity and expectations. And so often it's in certain kinds of growing developing countries that you get that instability. Because as you're saying, suddenly there are more universities, there's more education, there's more information. And so people have an aspiration to a middle-class life, but the state does not yet have, and the economy does not yet have the capacity to actually support that for the bulk of the population. And so you've got a lot of people who are deeply disappointed. Uh, that's the classic path, which goes from low expectation, low opportunity, to medium expectation, low opportunity, and that gap is what's dangerous. You can also get there by a different route, which is that you start with high expectation and high opportunity, but opportunity goes down a little bit. Suddenly, a lot of middle-class people no longer have a great life. And even though you start in a very different place and, and actually you're still at very different levels, the nature of a gap is slightly similar. And that may be a certain parallelism between, say, the West and India. And the other thing to think here is about the sort of class locus of populist anger and what the prevailing sentiment in that social class is. So I think in you know, the United States, there are parts of a middle, lower middle class that feels angry at the political establishment and so on because they feel like their lives aren't getting better. Uh, they are not doing better than their parents did. They're afraid of what the economic future is going to hold. They see cultural transformations which take certain privileges away from them, rightly so, but they are angry at that. What you might see in India is the assertion for the first time, and I think Turkey is similar on that, of a often provincial, lower middle class that used to be very poor, that now might have a little bit of an education, that might be starting to have certainly better jobs than the parents did, in some cases actually nice, decent jobs. And they say, why should we leave this 
anglophone snobby elite that looks down at the most successful specimens of our sort of class and caste as sort of deli boys and so on. Why should we let them run the country? Now it's time for us to assert ourselves. And the question is, is the impact that has on democracy in the long run similar or different? Is it that because they actually are quite happy with some of the economic transformations, because they think that democracy is working well for them, they might preserve the forms, even if they culturally assert themselves in a way that becomes quite dangerous, for example, for Muslims in the country? Or could that lead to a similar concentration of power, to a similar attack on the institutions, and ultimately to a breakdown of democratic rule? I don't think you're going to see a breakdown in democratic rule in India. I mean, I think it's a slow chipping away at the capacity of the institutions that particularly protect liberal rights, that is the, the thing that worries people. You asked earlier, is Narendra Modi like Erdogan to become even more powerful over time? And actually, the gravity of the electoral system, I think, may play a role in this. India is going to go and have an election next year. The odds are that Modi will emerge a less powerful figure from that. It's very difficult to imagine him getting as much of a majority, again, because the one he got last time was unprecedentedly large because he managed to tap these two constituencies, the, the religious uh, nationalist constituency and the sort of economic jobs constituency. So I think there may be the, the formal element of Indian democracy may protect against that path, although one might have said that in, in some other countries as well. But the interesting thing in, in Modi's position so you mentioned the old elite and the anger against the old elite. I mean, the old elite are really a, a diminished force now, like, you know, whatever it is they call it in Turkey, the white Istanbul crowd. The Congress Party, which was the party that ruled India for almost all of its independent heritage, is now really a rump. The dynasty, they call it the, the Nehru-Gandhi dynasty, which begins with Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister in 1947, running through his daughter, then her son, and now Rahul Gandhi, who's the latest in line. Uh, th this party is really diminished. It only has about 40 MPs. Rahul Gandhi is a political figure, has never really been able to assert himself. And so the old elite that believes in secular values that is relatively liberal is really in retreat. And it's partly in retreat because of Modi and the religious nationalists, but it's also in retreat because of other forces that we haven't talked about, caste-based parties, regional parties. I mean, India is a very diverse political system. You just wrote that rather splendid article in The New Yorker about how American politics has really cohered in an unprecedented way around two national parties in a way that's very historically unusual. India's gone exactly the opposite direction. It has a huge diversity, I think 200 political parties now, but at least a dozen significant major political parties, probably two dozen if I were to go down and, and count them, in addition to the two that the Congress Party and the BJP. And that is one way in which using even though India has a Westminster parliamentary model that was inherited from the British, it's one way in which it's quite unhelpful to think about India using the lens that we are used to from the Anglophone democracies in which you tend to have two dominant parties because power is much more diffuse. It's actually quite a centralized country in which a lot of power is held by the states. And so it's just much more of a mishmash. And so Modi 
I suspect will represent the high watermark of a certain kind of Hindu nationalist politics. And, and as he loses power in the next election, the worrying sign is that, you know, eventually he may get turfed out and someone even more extreme may come and take over the BJP. Mm. But whether then they will be as electorally popular as he will be able to do, as, as he was, whether they will be able to bring together those two elements of economic competence and Hindu nationalism in a way that is uniquely popular, I mean, that's a, a very moot point. That's why Modi is such an unusual and popular figure because he has two strings to his bow as opposed to the, the slightly more swivel-eyed elements in his coalition who might want to rewrite school textbooks and be mean to Muslims but have nothing to say about building an export-focused manufacturing sector or something of that sort. That's fascinating. I mean, I think we think of federalism as a great defense against the takeover of democratic systems. And I think politically it is. I mean, one of the things that does reassure me about the United States is that there isn't one national electoral commission, which is now dominated by Trump's uh, appointees, but rather there are literally hundreds and thousands of electoral commissions throughout the country at the county level, at the state level, and so on and so forth. And that makes it much harder to render elections unfree and unfair. But the fact that all of those are still organized broadly among partisan lines, the fact that there is a national democratic party, a national republican party, and that they actually have tremendous control now over local politics. As I tried to explain this article, Mac Politics, which builds on a very interesting recent book by Daniel Hopkins called Increasing the United States, that makes me a little worried, actually, because federalism on paper doesn't help very much when the political cleavages are very clear and there's basically two blocks. And perhaps the most optimistic thing I take from this conversation is the insight that federalism in India is not just on paper, it's there too, less so than the United States in certain ways, but it is there too. But it is in where the political cleavages actually lie and what political parties are viable and so on. And that may ultimately prove to be the most important check on Narendra Modi's power. There's an analogy here. So to the south of India, you have a smaller uh, South Asian country called Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka went through this period where they had not a Hindu nationalist leader, but, but a sort of nationalist, chauvinist leader who got in bed with the Chinese, began to degrade. His name was Mahinda Rajapaksa. Uh, it's another place I used to report from. And he very quickly degraded a lot of Sri Lanka's institutions in the period after the Civil War and began to turn Sri Lanka into something that looked a lot more like an East Asian economy, sort of top-down, less democratic, more organized, more efficient, more fast-growing, but you know, people were being bundled off into white vans and taken off and disappeared. That's the sort of trade-off that maybe you have in, in a lot of these South Asian countries, that it may be that you can go in a direction of having a more top-down authoritarian style of rule, and then gravity reasserts itself. And this happened in Sri Lanka. This guy got chucked out in an election, and it sort of became more South Asian again, more messy, more plural, less efficient, more chaotic, but a little bit more democratic. And I, I think that you're right that it may be that in the end, that's the, the sort of saving grace that people will decide that the Hindu nationalists have not delivered economically what they promised. And in the end, that the Hindu nationalist political project is not really what the sort of ordinary middle-class Indians want. They want a, a more materialist project of, of basic economic advancement and that they may decide to look for other leaders who might be able to deliver that. So, James, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, 
shared on Facebook or Twitter. Do what Starbuck did in episode 5 of Battlestar Galactica and write the name of the good fight on the bottom of the nearest plane. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.